Fantastic. A good Isaiah 40 to 55 based anthem. Magnificent. Well, guys, we're getting close to the end of our, of our series through Isaiah 40 to 55. This morning we come to what is perhaps the most famous chapter, one of the most famous chapters in Isaiah, one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. So I invite you to turn with me there this morning to this mountain peak of a chapter in the Bible. Chapters 53, 54, and 55, the last three of this big unit, are sort of the summit of this whole section. Like, so 40 to 50 is all about interacting with the pagan idolatry around Israel, and it's critiquing the idolatry. Remember, we called it the trial of the false gods. These false gods are on trial, and God is showing us, showing Israel through Isaiah, how foolish idolatry truly is. And he's using the weakness of these idols to highlight the greatness and glory of the one true God. And then now we're, we're transitioning into this crescendo here from 53 to 55, where the gospel in all of its magnificence will be on display. We begin with chapter 53 as we move towards the end of our series. So... Um, I'm going to read for us verse, just uh, verses 4 through 6 this morning. If you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah 53, we'll just read verses 4 through 6 today. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's breathtaking, powerful, almighty, inspired word. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word today. Father, these, these, are, these are words that ought to make us tremble to even speak. Sometimes, Lord, we're, so, we're just so easygoing and flippant with these infinitely precious things. With this sacred treasure that is your word. And Lord, I pray that you would fill me with a sense of awe and a sense of unworthiness to even say these out loud from this pulpit. And that you would fill us with all at the remarkable things that you have revealed to us in this chapter. And that you would help a weak, feeble preacher say what no one can say adequately. 
that you would just help us to open our eyes and peel back eternity for a moment and just peer into the wonder of this word today. Write it upon our hearts. Don't let us be the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, has been called the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. And it's called that because uniquely, Isaiah proclaims the Messiah, Jesus, and the good news of who he is and what he will do for his people. It proclaims these things Almost as clearly as the New Testament. Now we don't know his name's Jesus yet in Isaiah. We don't see that. And of course the, the specific details get filled in by the Gospels and we need that. But this prophecy, these prophecies in Isaiah are some of the clearest pronouncements of the Messiah who would come, who he would be, and what he would do, and what that would mean for us. In Isaiah chapter 52, which we looked at two weeks ago, we have this amazing build-up to the greatest prophecy of the Old Testament about Jesus here in 53. Back in Isaiah 52, God calls upon the prophet Isaiah to announce the good news, to preach the gospel that God is becoming king again. That God is bearing his holy arm. Remember I mentioned this. I, I pictured the picture of him rolling up his sleeve and just flexing his muscle for all to see. That God is bearing his holy arm. He's revealing his saving might for his people. He is redeeming his people. He is freeing them from their exile in Babylon with a new exodus. Israel always looked back to that exodus from Egypt. And here God is saying, you need to look forward, guys. Don't just reflect on the nostalgia of Moses in the past. No, I'm sending another one. One greater than Moses is on his way. And he's going to take you out of exile. And he's going to bring you home. It's a new exodus. And you're not going to just look back to Moses. You're going to be thinking about this one who's going to come. Who's going to liberate. Who's going to redeem with a new exodus. And as this one comes and redeems his people and brings you back to your land and you restore the walls of Jerusalem and you rebuild the city and you reconstruct the temple, God himself will return in glory to his holy land and into his holy temple so that all the ends of the earth will see and turn to him and be saved. This is what Isaiah 52 says. Verses, starting in verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel. Of him who brings the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news or gospel, a gospel of happiness, of joy. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy because eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh, Jehovah God Himself, coming back to Zion. Break forth into singing. 
O you waste places of Jerusalem, the Lord has redeemed. He has comforted His people. In verse 10, the Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is what's coming. That's what we saw in chapter 52. And now this morning, with that context in mind, we transition right into Isaiah 53. The last three verses of chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, and all of chapter 53 are one single unit. They go together. And in this unit, God tells us how He's going to fulfill what we just saw in chapter 52. This tells us how God is going to fulfill the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at today. How does God fulfill the gospel? Now, in this chapter, there's just far, far too much packed into it for, for us to go through every verse and look at everything that's in here. So we're not even going to try that. Instead, I've selected the material that I want to focus on just to hit the high point so we get the gist of the chapter. And I've selected this, in the, this material in order to do two things with us this morning. Two things. First, I want to connect this prophecy in 53 with the larger section of 40 to 55. Take this prophecy, put it back into context, and see how we got to this point. And the second thing we're going to do this morning is to demonstrate, by looking at, the, at chapter 53, at some of the key verses, we're going to demonstrate how this chapter fulfills the gospel. So on your sermon notes, uh, in your bulletin, there are three main points. Point one will connect chapter 53 with the larger section, 40 to 55. And then points two and three will show how this chapter fulfills the gospel. So that's where we're going today. So we begin with the first point. And it might be a bit startling <laughs> to see the, what point one is. Right? God is dead. <laughs> now I know a lot of you have seen the movie, God is not dead. <laughs> so I'm not trying to contradict the movie. But you'll see where we're going in just a second. God is dead. What is going on here? We just, I mean, you could tell in my voice maybe, the way I was reading chapter 52, 7 to 10, that this is like exciting and this is leap for joy and sing and shout and all oh, the gospel's coming true and oh, here we go, second exodus. And then chapter 53, everything changes. The whole tone and tenor of the whole passage is just one of sorrow. And it's a, it's a quick transition. What's happening? What's happening is the death of God. Let's dive into this. Isaiah 53 is about a mysterious figure that Bible scholars call the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Isaiah prophesies in this chapter the horrific suffering, and death of the servant of the Lord. So we don't know who is this suffering servant. Now, we know that Jesus fulfills this. So the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, that's right. But 
that's not what I'm asking. I want to know what type of figure is this? What, what kind of figure is this suffering servant that ends up being Jesus? And to, to figure this out, we need to read this prophecy in its full context in chapters 40 to 55. Now, I've mentioned this at a couple of key points as we've gone through this series, that Isaiah 40 to 55 has these four big, big passages that are called servant songs. They're very poetic in form. It's almost like Hebrew lyrics. That's why they're called songs. The four servant songs, four key passages where this servant figure shows up. Now, a lot of times in this unit, the servant is just Israel. Just the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. But there's four places where the servant is an individual person who is clearly distinguished from the rest of Israel. And even in some places you have Israel, the servant, is sinful and failing and unbelieving. And so this other servant, this single individual servant, is going to come and do what corporate Israel failed to do. God's going to send this servant to succeed where the people as a whole have failed. And you see this throughout this section. Four big passages. They're in chapters 42, 1 to 9. 49, 1 to 12. 50, 4 to 11. And then right here. 52, 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. This fourth servant song is the culmination of these four songs. And when we put the four together, the shocking identity of this servant becomes clear. So go back with me to chapter 42. Just look at a couple of key verses from this first servant song. These are like the four parts of some great symphony. And as we come to the fourth servant song in 53, we get this epic crescendo. But the song starts in 42. In verse 1 it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you. You singular, speaking to the servant. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So this servant is this great global Savior. God has elected him, chosen him. He has put the Spirit on him without measure. That's why he's called Messiah or Christ. Because Messiah in Hebrew is the same thing as Christ in Greek, and it just means the anointed one. Anointed with what? Well, Israel's kings were anointed with oil. That set them apart as king. Or Aaron gets anointed to be high priest with oil. But here, that's just a picture of of this Messiah, this one who will come, this servant, this elect chosen servant, 
He gets anointed with the very Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon him, saturates him, soaks him in the Spirit. He is the man of the Spirit. And he walks in the Spirit. And through the Spirit, this servant is going to bring the just, the saving justice and righteousness of God to all lands, all peoples, and all nations. And he is going to bring the prisoners out of their dungeons. He is going to open the eyes of the blind. He is going to be this incredible, incredible figure who brings the will of God to pass. That's the first servant song. That's what he's going to be, first of all. Now jump ahead to 49. The second servant song. Chapter 49, verse 1. God says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So he's talking to the Gentiles on the remote ends of the earth. And everywhere in between. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Remember in Matthew's gospel, the angel comes to Joseph and says, you're going to name this child who is been conceived in the womb of your wife Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. This is a prophecy that says God's going to name him and call him and choose him from the very womb. The Lord called me from the womb. Skip ahead to verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant... To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. There's that return from exile language. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. To bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of of the earth. Verse 7 says that kings and princes will bow before this servant. He is going to be king of kings and lord of lords and the nations, governments, princes and emperors and presidents and people who are in charge, governors and you name it, the leaders of the nations who run the governments of their nations are going to bow their knees and prostrate themselves and recognize the crown rights of Christ, that He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that this servant, this Messiah, is the world's true Lord, who brings peace and justice and righteousness to the nations. An amazing figure He's going to be. Now, the third servant song is one chapter ahead, chapter 50. And it says in verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear. So here the servant himself is talking about himself again. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Here is someone who is going to be fully obedient to the will of God. Completely obedient. He will open his ears. He will not shut his ears to the will of God. To the word of God. He has open ears. He is not rebellious. He will not turn his back on God. Rather, verse 6, I give my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
Interesting. Now, so we have this one that everybody on the earth's going to bow before and say, You are king. You are Lord. You're the one who brings God's law. You're the one who brings salvation. You're the one who brings peace. You're in charge of our governments. You're in charge of us. We bow to you. This figure, who's perfectly obedient to God, it says, I do not turn my back on God. Instead, I turn my back and I let those who hate me strike me. And I let them pummel me in the face and pluck out my beard. I am disgraced and spat upon. So this is interesting. So this servant is going to suffer. This servant is going to suffer. Verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What's, what's going on here? This servant says, okay, yeah, you, you reject me, you curse me, spit at me, beat me, pluck out my beard, punch me in the face. Okay, the Lord God will help me. Which of you who is beating me and accusing me and condemning me, which of you can actually prove me guilty of any sin? Answer, none of you. And so what's going to happen? End of verse 9, all of them, all my accusers and condemners and enemies, you're all going to wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. All my enemies are going to end up in the ground. Not me. Why? Because I'm not guilty of sin. I'm not guilty of sin. My enemies are. And God is going to help me. He will deliver me from this unjust condemnation. It's being put upon me. So this is what's happening with this servant. This is, the, this is the Messiah, the King, the one who fully obeys God, who has the, the Spirit without measure, who's going to rule the world and save the world and bring the blessings promised to Abraham to all the families and nations of the earth who's going to be opposed, ridiculed, spat upon, beaten pummeled, who has to cry out to God for deliverance, and ultimately his enemies will not succeed. They will perish, but he will remain. So where is this going? This is all coming to a big culmination in our passage this morning. Chapter 53. This is the Messiah who we're talking about. Who is this suffering servant? To summarize what we've seen so far, He is this. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the everlasting King of all lands, peoples, and nations. The light of the world. The mediator of the new covenant that gives us eternal life. And here's one more connection I want to make in this first point. The servant is also called the arm of the Lord. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This whole chapter is describing the arm of Yahweh. This servant is called the arm of of the Lord. The same arm of the Lord back in chapter 52 verse 10 where it says the Lord has bared his holy arm. 
The prophet says, to whom has the arm been revealed? Well, chapter 52 verse 10 says, the arm's been revealed before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So here's the point of this connection. This servant is the arm of the Lord. And this is a metaphorical way of saying this. That this servant is a member of the Godhead. Just as the, the arm is a member of God's body in this metaphor, so this servant is going to be a member of the Godhead. The arm of the Lord is Jehovah God Himself rolling up His sleeves and reaching down for us in person. Listen to this from Isaiah 40, where we started our series. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. The Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. This is Old Testament, prophetic, metaphorical, prefiguring of who this suffering servant is going to be when he shows up. He's going to be God on foot. He's going to be the arm of the Lord, sleeves rolled up, in person, bringing about the will of God. But clearly he isn't just God. I mean, if you take the dividing line... God on one side and all of creation on the other. Creator on this side, creation on that. God and everything else that isn't God. All the stuff God made. You, me, Saturn, the closest galaxy. You name it. Everything that isn't God, God made. There's the dividing line. And this is telling us that the arm of the Lord means this servant is on God's side of the line. He's on God's side of the line. But because He's the arm of the Lord, He's the one through whom God reaches across that line and reaches out for us. And that's why He's able to suffer. You see, God can't suffer. You could, you could throw rocks as high as you can. We can shoot missiles into space. We could try our best to hit God, hurt God, punish God. You can't touch Him. He's untouchable. He's unreachable. We can't do anything to God to bring Him harm or cause Him some injury. But this suffering servant, the arm of the Lord, is able to, to suffer. So what's going on here? This tells us that this isn't just God in Himself. This is God in flesh. Flesh that's able to be nailed to a cross. Flesh that's able to suffer. The servant isn't just a member of the Godhead. The servant is a man. A flesh and blood human being. Chapter 52, verses 14, or verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of man. We're talking about someone who, is, who suffers so violently, who is so ripped to pieces that you can barely tell that you're looking at a human being anymore. 
So violently does he suffer. Now God in himself can't suffer like that. But God in flesh can. So here's the conclusion of this first point. Why is this first part, this first point called God is dead? It's because Jesus, who fulfills this prophecy, is God in flesh dying for you. The death of the servant, the death of Jesus the Messiah, is the death of God. A divine person was put to death on the cross. Not just another random Jewish guy from way back when. Thousands of people were crucified in the first. Thousands of Jews were crucified in Israel in the first century. What makes this one so different? Jesus was crucified next to two other guys. They didn't save anybody. Their deaths didn't cleanse anybody in here from sin. What makes the one in the middle so special? It's because that's not just a man up there. That's your God who took the death sentence of God's law that hung over your head and he took it in his hand, both hands, and he took nails through your death warrant and he died the death in your place. This is God dying for you. See, if he was just a man, his death wouldn't matter. It, it, I mean, it would be like, okay, that's sad. But ultimately, so what? Happened a long time ago. If he's just a human being, his death doesn't really mean anything for anybody in this room. But because he's God, his death is able to accomplish your salvation. We owed a debt that only God could pay, but only in flesh could the debt be paid? That's why Paul says in Romans 8 3, Romans 8 3, God condemned your sin in the flesh of his son. Sin had to be condemned in the flesh. Someone had to die. Blood had to be shed. A sacrifice had to be made. A human being sinned and robbed God of his honor. Someone, some man has to pay. But no man is able to make the payment. God can make the payment. And so he comes in flesh and makes the payment. This is what we're looking at when we see Isaiah 53. This is the servant. This is the servant. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy that proclaims, Behold, God has died for you. No mere man died for you, Christian. It was the eternal Son of God, who redeemed you with His blood. You serve a God today. You worship a God who doesn't remain high and lifted up and unapproachable and distant. Who makes demands of you but isn't willing to come down here and get His hands dirty Himself. No, no, no. You serve a God who has nail scars in His hands. The emblems of His everlasting love for you. And the fact that He is alive and can show you these scars, tells you that he has won the victory, that he was successful, that he accomplished all that God sent him to do. And that's why he's worthy today of all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So now, how does the death of God fulfill the gospel? This is 
points two and three. We'll take them together. How does the death of God fulfill the gospel? Two ways. First, He dies for our sin. He dies for our sin. You see, Jesus was sinless. And it's our sins that killed Him. Jesus had no sin. No reason to be condemned. No grounds for punishment. He never sinned, so He shouldn't have died. We've only sinned. We should have been crushed a long time ago. But it's not like that. So why did He die? Because we killed Him. Our sins killed Him. You know, there was that song we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. There's that line that says, It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that held Him there until all was accomplished. And that's right. Our sins have killed Him. We are the guilty ones, and Jesus saves us by taking our place. So let's just consider a couple of verses from Isaiah 53 that shows this. Let's look in the first part here, verses 3 through 9. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. And yet, what, what was our response for him coming in the flesh and bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows? What's our reaction? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, he's under the curse of God. To hell with him. We opposed him. We heaped our evil upon him. We sinned against him at every turn. Jesus, don't just think, okay, your sin and mine was, was credited to Jesus on the cross. He, he actually endured our actual sins. Like when he was alive and people sinned against him, he endured our sins. We sinned against him his whole life and he never once sinned. <laughs> he was opposed and ridiculed and, and he took it. He took those sins. Think about the last time you got sinned against and how mad you got. And how you had thoughts of retaliation, or you had bitter thoughts, or maybe you still hadn't forgiven that person. I mean, we're horrible at reacting to getting sinned against. This guy got sinned against his whole life, and he never responded with even a sinful flicker of a wrong reaction in his heart. He just, I mean, this is breathtaking. He never sinned. He just took our sins. We, we just kept coming until we nailed him to a piece of wood and watched him die, mocked him as he did so. That song also says, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. He endured all of our repetitive pettiness and sin. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. We broke the law and he took the sentence. He was crushed for our iniquities. We broke the law. We were evil. We were wicked. And He took what we deserved. Upon Him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. 
and with His wounds we are healed. When you think about Jesus being being punished, when you think about Jesus being condemned and struck, and every time they spit at Him, and every time they hit Him, and every time they mocked Him, with every bruise they inflicted on Him, imagine you look like Jesus at the end of Him getting beat to death. You're that pummeled, barely human-looking figure laying there, dead in sin. And every time somebody hit Jesus, one of your wounds healed. And every time He got struck, you got a little bit more whole. A little bit better. This cut healed as soon as he, he gets cut here and your cut gets healed. Every time he gets wounded and beat and hit, you get better and better and better. His wounds made you whole. In other words, all those wounds that were inflicted on us by our own sin, he took them. He absorbed them. He sucked them out of us so that we healed every time he was struck. By his wounds, we are healed. Until it was accomplished. And when he breathed his last breath, you took your first breath of new life. (sighs) And you were a new creature. He made all things new. Everything was accomplished. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. That's the first way. The death of God fulfills the gospel. He takes all of our sin and all the punishment our sin deserved upon himself. And he bears it all the way to the end until it is extinguished and you are made whole and set free. The final way the final way that the death of God fulfills the gospel is that His death kills death. There's a great Puritan named John Owen who wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. In the old Eastern Orthodox Church, they talk about how Jesus trampled down death by his own death and gave life to those who are in the tombs. The death of death happened when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross. And the evidence that death is defeated is that it could not hold him. He was set free from death. Just a couple verses here in verses 10 through A couple of highlights here from verses 10 through 12. Notice, first of all, in verse 10 it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. God put that on Jesus. We should not think, oh, those Romans... Or all those angry Jews in that crowd who, who yelled crucify him. Yeah, that, that happened. Don't minimize that. But don't think that's the end of the story. Don't think that God had plan A. It was going great. The Jews and Romans conspired, killed Jesus. And he's like, well, great. Now what are we going to do? All right, let's get him up, raise him up, and let's try again. Plan B. Nope. This was the plan from the start. I mean, this is the prophecy, right? We're reading the prophecy. 
Jesus was always going to die. It was God's will for him to do so. This is, God has been planning this from the foundation of the earth. It's all been building to this moment when this suffering servant would come and by his death would make a whole new creation. Imagine that the death of Christ is like the seed that goes in the ground and out of it is going to spread the roots and the fruits of a new heavens and a new earth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But by crushing him, he crushed death. Notice the rest of the passage. He shall see his offspring. Jesus will see those who come after him. He shall prolong his days. He's not staying in that tomb. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. At the start of the verse, the will of the Lord crushed him. And at the end of the verse, the will of the Lord prospers him. That's death and resurrection. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus will be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And Christian, he is continuing to do that intercession for you even now. Even now, he shows those wounds to his father. And he says, Lord, yes, I know they sinned again today. <laughs> yep, they messed up again today. But look, look, father, what I have done. I have claimed them with my own blood. I laid down my life for them. And they are mine. Death cannot have them. The enemy cannot have them. The grave cannot have them. This world will not take them. Father, see what I have done for them. Keep your promise. Keep them. Bring them to glory to be with us forever. See my sacrifice and do not impute their sins to them. But see my righteousness. Only look at them through me, Lord. Look at them through the holes in my hands. Let that be the lens through which you view them. Through my blood and my righteousness. This is the fulfillment of the gospel. And because a sinless Savior died... My guilty soul is counted free. Jesus paid it all. In Jesus, all is fulfilled. In Jesus, your whole salvation is accomplished, Christian. Jesus is your all-sufficient Savior. He is your everything. He is your very life. He is your joy. He is your hope. And so today, give Him your whole heart. And may he be your constant vision. May he be the one you treasure above all. He is God in flesh doing for you what only he could do. This is your God. Stand and wonder and be in awe. Can it be? Is this really true? This is the best news in the world. And it's true. And today you're invited to believe just believe it and receive it and give him the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all we have to do is just stand back, see what you have accomplished for us, and accept by faith 
that you did it for each of us. That there's nothing left for us to do. You've done it all. And so, Lord, we drop our handful of good works that we think somehow could earn something from you. We, we empty our hands. We drop, we relinquish those good works. And nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. O oh Lord, give us empty hands of faith that reaches out and receives from you our whole salvation and takes no credit, who boasts not in ourselves, but who boasts only in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Make us people who stand upon this gospel, who view ourselves and our daily lives through this gospel, who are set free by this gospel not to think that we have to perform for you in a way that earns your favor or your smile or your blessings. But you are the one who always gives freely and graciously. You gave us your own son. You will not hold back anything else that's good for us. So teach us, Lord, to submit to your wisdom and to accept from your hand freely and then to turn and serve and love our neighbors as you have loved us freely. For your name's sake and for your glory we pray. Amen.